This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, and we are live. And Chase, in the spirit of things, I got the t-shirt, dude. My life with the Thrill Kill Colt. It is a must wear for today's occasion. So to start things out, as everybody rolls in, I have a two-part question I've got to ask you. All right. Number one, can one be hypnotized against their will? Are we doing this one part at a time? Yes, sir. The question itself is flawed from the beginning. And to illustrate that, I'd like you to imagine I've got a syringe here and you and I are in the same room and I've got some kind of medicine in there. It could hurt. It could help you. It could hurt you. Who knows? So can I give that to you against your will? Like, of course, if you see me coming with the syringe, you can fight me off. Sure. Right. I mean, you could get a baseball bat and just hit me in the head and I'd be finished. True. So hypnosis is pretty similar. If you see the needle, you see the person that you know the intent is coming, absolutely not. It's probably not going to happen. However, if we're in the same room, I don't show you a syringe. I don't tell you what's going on. And you turn around to check your email and I bury it in your neck. That's a different story. That does not involve your will at all. It involves your awareness. And that is the true question. Can you be hypnotized against your will? Absolutely not. So hypnotherapists will tell you no all day long. The true question is, can it be done without your awareness or your consent? And the answer is 100% absolutely. Yes. All right. Perfect. And that makes sense. You can trick somebody into it. You can be sneaky about it. You can do a lot of different things. So the second part of the question then would be, I'm always hearing, oh, no, you can't be hypnotized to do something that you would not normally do. Is this true or false? And can you explain? I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for answering this, but I have to answer it honestly here. I guess I don't have to. But if a person is hypnotized, they can be made to do things that they normally would not do. Yes, absolutely. I'll give you an example. Let's, uh, there's a creep bag hypnotist who is also an attorney in, in Washington State who did this with his clients, his legal clients, and they have videotape of this. He was arrested for it. And let's say there's a creep bag hypnotherapist who has people, someone comes into his office. Let's say it's a woman comes into his office and wants to quit smoking or eat better. And he wants her to get naked or take off her clothing. And in her normal circumstances, if she's in someone's office, that sounds like something she would not normally do. If she believed or if she was to mentally hallucinate the fact that she was at home in private about to get into the shower, everything changes. So what is allowable given the circumstances is what we really have to consider. And there's another caveat to this that would you commit murder? That's not something normal people would do. If we look back at the Stanley Milgram experiment from 1962, 65% of people without any hypnosis at all will commit murder in less than an hour with no influence being done on them. So the hypnosis is not the dangerous part. It's conformity and obedience that be, that makes us a little bit more dangerous. So if, if thousands of other people are tolerating X behavior, we're more likely to do it ourselves. And we've seen this in unlimited number of experiments. There's a great one. I won't talk about it a whole lot, but you can look it up online. It's called the Lines Experiment by Dr. Solomon Ash. 
but we're more likely to be talked into doing something against our normal way of behavior, our morals, our values by an authority figure or a large group of people or someone convincing us that an authority figure said it or convincing us that a large number of people believe that it's okay. Okay, perfect. And I'm deliberately singling you out. And this is to let everybody else know that I want Chase solo because yes, I'm going to crib every one of these pieces and I'm putting it together in another video. And this is an answer to an interview with a high level Nexium member. Now Nexium is the cult that was led by Keith Ranieri, rhymes with Canary, or said like Canaria, and he just got put away for 120 years. Now, somebody who I, in general, have respected quite a lot is Scott Adams. Scott Adams is a trained hypnotherapist, hypnotist, all of that, and he's always talking about how Trump and things are manipulating people and moving forward. In this interview, though, I am very troubled because he is saying things like, you can't be made to do something that you wouldn't do under hypnosis, or no, uh, these people knew what they were getting into. And I really feel from the cult experts I've had and people like you and Christina Lennon, who I'm also speaking with, that that's absolute rubbish because I'm going to ask you one more question and then we're going to move on to all the general overall things and this is a statement dealing that you dealt with in your mind control lecture and i bring it up very specifically because if you watch the behind the scenes bits about nexium one of the things they did was make sure that calories were restricted to around 500 a day and they kept people too busy to sleep do you want to speak on that a little bit Calorie restriction is very common in interrogation and mind control practices. The lower food portions or calorie intake a person has, the lower their willpower and ability to resist unjust authorities, let's say, or just authorities, either way, it, it increases. And another thing that it does is uh, or another thing I've read, especially from these people, is that sleep was also restrictive. And the number one side effect of sleep loss is increased suggestibility, according to me anyway. And there's been a lot of studies on that that show that a person's level of suggestibility goes way up. And suggestibility means the likelihood that a person will take and then act on a suggestion from another person. So when we hear these things, we, we can't be made to do things against our will. This implies that we're aware that it's happening. And when we hear things like you can't be made to do things you normally wouldn't do, this implies that there is an absence of authority, there's an absence of previous social proof, or there's an absence of this, this is normal for me in a certain circumstance. So shooting might be great at a shooting range. So when someone says you can't be made to go pull out a gun and start shooting, it seems normal at a shooting range. So the context is very important and the level of suggestibility is very important. I've spent uh, my whole lifetime developing tactics and techniques to ramp up suggestibility in other people without using the sleep deprivation, without using diet deprivation or what they call a calorie restriction down to 500. But all that does is manufacture suggestibility. Okay. And I've also found, and I think I've read too, like the most dangerous drivers on the planet are not drunk. They're sleep deprived. And I know that I've gone sleep deprived for extended periods of times, and I literally felt psychotic. I mean, where I reacted oddly, I, I got overly tense, I would just, you know, practically flip out. So I can imagine have some power. Yeah, now I, wanna... I may sound like a, uh, a nut saying this, but personally, if I'm sleep deprived, deprived and I haven't slept for a day and a half, two days, uh, very common when I was in the military. I am very, very careful about what goes into my ears. So if I'm listening to a commercial about frequent migraines or constipation or 
any kind of nasty, horrible things that all these pharmaceutical companies want to jam down your throat during the middle of the day, keep in mind that the more suggestible you are, the more likely your brain is to act on that stuff. Even if it's in the background, you've turned the volume down, you're not listening to it, it's still there. Do you train yourself for it? As an example, like I'll be watching YouTube videos and I get caught in a rabbit hole and I start to feel angry because it'll start showing me one video or another and it starts tweaking me. And to counter that, I'll watch important videos to me. Like um, I think this little girl, I believe her name is Mandy and she's a drummer and she plays against Dave Grohl. So I, I will deliberately feed in, if you will, noise about a classic rock song or little girl playing drums or things like that, which starts to tweak the algorithm the other way. Do you ever do anything like that? I've never messed with an algorithm before. That's a good idea. I like that. Every time I get annoyed, I go for silly. If I could find something silly, I feel like it's just going to, you know, uh, raise my dopamine a little bit. I get a little bit of laugh. I feel a little bit better and it helps counter Plus, they keep serving up more. They're like, oh, if you like uh, Nandy Bushnell playing drums, maybe you'll like this other kid playing drums or his dog doing something. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, one, one thing I've never admitted to anybody and I've never said in any public forum is that if I'm working, I, I write every day from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m., seven days a week. Mm. And that's my sacred time to write, uh, produce the books and stuff like that. And the whole time I'm doing that, I have audiobooks on about the power of positive thinking, Think and Grow Rich. I have the first ever printed edition of <laughs> Think and Grow Rich. It was the first gift I ever bought myself. And okay. all of this stuff, just law of attraction things. And we can definitely get into that. I can give you a really sure. good uh, from a extreme skeptic science guy's perspective of, of how that cool. all works. But that, that's great to have in the background, especially even if you're watching YouTube videos and that's in the background, just a little bit muted, just to remind you at every little pause when no one's speaking on the YouTube, just to keep you grounded in, in what's what's real. Is that a kind of a hypnosis methodology too? I mean, I, I used to study for tests by every time I go to sleep, I would listen to the answers that are read into a tape recorded to just kind of through osmosis or whatever to just seep in. Yeah. And that, in 2012, actually, no, I just made that up sometime a while ago, I made up a four step process for brainwashing people overseas. And we can dig into that if you want, because it's great. Oh, for, it's great for <laughs> anything you want to do. You can even use it on yourself. And I think that's there. There's a lot of that there. And one of the biggest parts, if I could sum up mind control in one word, it would be repetition. Mm, okay. That makes sense. And um, real quickly, uh, get to the audience. I'm going to start high. Gavin Stone, mutual friend of ours. Give me 10 pounds. Gavin is a hero. Thank you very much, Gavin. Thanks, and Gavin. He actually had a question here. Um, Chase, last time we spoke on the phone, you mentioned a book you were working on originally intended for your children and how you're prepping it for the public with life lessons. Can you tell more? So this might go lighter and then we'll get back dark again. The, I, uh, was diagnosed with a condition that I thought would kill me a few years ago. So I wrote down a book of all from a behavioral mind control expert, whatever the hell you want to call it perspective how to live a good life. And even in an interrogation room, I continue to believe that we rise by lifting others. That's been my, the feeling I've had my whole life. So this book is called the 26 agreements. I think it'll be out next summer, give or take. And uh, it's, it may not sell. It, it may sell a whole bunch. I have no idea, but I'm definitely going to put it out there. You can't lose on that. All right, so Jane or Jana Ganaway, I'm studying the ellipsis manual and the training planner, but I'm still having trouble with establishing GHT. Would you be able to do a GHT example live with Eric? So first off, what is GHT? And then GHT, it's a, it didn't exist before. It's something I noticed in all these videos that people did all the time. So I had to give it a name. 
So the name that we gave it was gestural hemispheric tendency. It's a big sciencey name for what side do people look toward or gesture toward when they talk about positive versus negative things. So hmm. is it like eye accessing cues? Similar. And eye accessing is, don't get me started on that. But uh, don't worry, I'll bring, I'll bring Greg in. Greg in. No. <laughs> yeah. Greg and I disagree on some things, but the eye accessing cues were a great start. So it's not that they were trying to BS the world. They This was their contribution. Someone added to it and added to it. So people say it's been disproven a whole lot. I think it hasn't been disproven. It's been improved. The understanding of it's improved over time. So it's not how it looks back then. And even the people who created it said this. Okay. So GHT, so if, I, if we were both in like this full body camera and I asked Eric like, how, uh, how's the, what's the worst track traffic that you've ever been in? And then Eric's explaining it. And with his left hand, he's saying, well, these people are piled up on the freeway. It was just as far as you can see. We're just, we were stuck there for hours. And then I asked Eric, you guys just went on a vacation, right? Down to Disney world or something. And he goes, oh yeah, we had a great time. So now his right hand starts coming up and gesturing. Mm. So, that's really easy to spot. Just ask someone a question about something positive and you're finished. You already know their negative side. Mm. So the way to exploit GHT is a little bit complex, but if I know Eric gestures that way, this is backwards on my screen. It's, it's a little confusing, but if I know Eric is moving that way, I'm going to move this way at the end of our conversation when I'm asking you to do something. If I'm a therapist asking you to start uh, a habit journal to, to start getting over depression, or if I'm beginning some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy to get your mm -hmm. compliance, I'm going to lean that direction. I'm going to scoot my chair over that direction to make you look and reference that side of your movement or that side of your brain, the good side, what you associate with positive stuff as I'm asking you to do something. Okay. And would you use the negative to um, discuss behavior that you're maybe trying to get rid of? Like uh, you'd be on the negative side if you're talking about their smoking or eating habit or that type of thing and kind of shifting back and forth. Yeah. And, the negatives, I wouldn't use it a lot, but the negative side I would use for the two C's. Number one is the cost of an action. And this is for everybody. Sales, a lawyer who's persuading a jury, anybody, I might use that side while talking about the cost of not doing what we're talking about. And the second C is specifically for sales or, or a trial, like a law firm. And the second C would be competition. So mm -hmm. I might do this, or if Eric's over there, I might do this when I'm talking about opposing counsel, or if I might do this when I'm talking about some of our competitors. So that's all it would be. Granted, none of these things are of merit on their own. You can't just do this and then get success. You have to stack these things together. So you can't you can't take a single Lego and say it's a castle. You've got to stack a bunch of crap together to make to make it into a castle. When I imagine um, kind of like the mind control thing, the repetition it's going to be awkward to use the techniques at first anyway. So you've got to do it over and over and over to where you don't even. I mean, I guess you're not even thinking about doing it. You just naturally are doing it. Probably so. And there's some people that do it naturally with no training at all. And we call we just call them charismatic. Mm -hmm. But think of uh, how Trump speaks. When Trump speaks on stage, there is a massive amount of repetition. Oh, yeah. And there's a, a researcher named Dr. James Pennebaker at the University of Texas. He wrote a book called The Secret Life of Pronouns. But the, he also talked in this book about the newness of words. So the phrase, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, those aren't all individual words. In that phrase, some words are repeated. One, four, step, mm -hmm. whatever else man. they are. So there's, there's, not, there's not a whole lot of uniqueness. So we can measure someone's veracity and truthfulness typically from the 
amount of unique words that they tend to use. That's cool. And do you also study people like uh, Simon Lancaster and speechwriters and and folks like that because they are actually deliberately doing some of this? Um, yeah, using the rhymes because they sound true, even though it doesn't mean it's true. Just because it rhymes does not mean it's actually truthful. Right. But boy, it rhymes. It must be real. It's got to be real. Stronger. It's catchy. There's a I can't remember the author's name, but the book there's a book on how to make people do that called the Microscript Rules, and that harkens back to all those things that we still remember today. Like if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Acquit from the OJ trial. We all remember it. So it, it how to make things sticky. Definitely. And back to your Trump low energy Jeb. Joe. Uh, Jeb, I thought was it's Sleepy Joe and Low Energy Jeb. That's right. Yeah, he was talking about Jeb, Jeb <laughs> Bush. Yeah, which was to me one of the most devastating moves ever because everybody thought of Jeb Bush as very sober and thoughtful and cautious, and he he just painted low energy, and it's like you can't get that image out of your freaking head. It's true. All right, so we have here, um, and I'm sure you want to do this. Chase would like to speak about his upcoming release, Six Minute X-Ray. That would be great. What is Six Thank Minute X-Ray? Thanks, Braden. I'll send you a check. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, on November 20, I have a book coming out called Six Minute X-Ray. It is a rapid behavior profiling manual on all of the things that are very, very specific and quick. So how to profile a human being in six minutes to where you know their fears, their insecurities, all of that stuff. And six minutes is the worst case scenario. And in a lot of my trainings, I'll bring in someone live. I'll ask them three or four just totally normal questions and show how the behavioral profile can be put together in six minutes or less. And that's what the entire book is about. It's a completely new system. I think 90% of it was invented by me over the course of 20 years and 30,000 hours of doing this stuff. And we built this system to, to make it easier for intelligence personnel and interrogators to get results. Hmm. Okay. Are you, are you going through that right now that you've learned things one way and over time you're starting to shift or change your methodology as you learn more? Uh, yeah, but I, I think I've been a methodology changer habitually my whole life because the moment that something starts working more, I've treated all of my life and all of my conversations like an A-B test. Hmm. And so every interaction, every interrogation, everything was an A-B test. Something worked or something didn't work. I need to sharpen this. And in the end, it could, it could wind up saving somebody's life. That's interesting. You brought up charismatic people earlier and you brought it up before, like Charles Manson didn't read a book on to do how to do this stuff. Weren't they theoretically probably doing an AB test their whole life too? They They're do. Saying, mm, if I push this button, they seem to be doing that. Let me keep doing that. They do it unconsciously, however. So when you have somebody who is an extreme level narcissist or a psychopath, mm -hmm. they have trouble with emotion. So they're from the, a very young age, they get into that mindset of when I did this facial expression, I got affection. When I did, when I started using this, when I touched this person on the shoulder, they showed more emotion to me. So they spend their lives trying to figure out human emotion on a level that uh, that we will never experience. And that the, their whole life now becomes about presenting a mask, making people feel a certain way. And at the end, I become I'm at the top because I've done all of these things and I can I can just yank an emotion, any emotion I want out of a person around me. And that's for the, the negative aspect of it. They want the control for themselves. Well, and that makes some sense because um, you know, like talking to Dr. Fallon, I know Scott and I are, you know, Scott disagrees and he doesn't think he's a psychopath. Dr. Fallon's arguing there has to be an um, evolutionary reason for a psychopath to exist. And that 
what you're describing may be actually a superpower because sometimes our our weaknesses, so to speak, are superpowers. Like dyslexics have a lot of trouble reading, but they tend to be able to absorb the environment around them and memorize things like crazy. Is that the case here? It could be. I think every every species has done. You know, if you if you read Charles Darwin, everything relies on uniqueness. So there's a species like uh, starts shooting off a couple of ideas. It starts testing ideas, basically, and these are just random striations of a, of a DNA going one way. And if that starts to become more prominent, then that starts to grow a little bit more. And the more successful that is, the more it grows. I'll give you a great example of this. There was a nuclear reactor, I think, in the northern U.S. I don't remember what state it was in. But there's a forest, a giant state forest reserve right next to this nuclear plant. Mm -hmm. And the forest is full of these white moths that are about two inches across. So they would land on a tree. This moth would land on a tree. And in the middle of the night, it's solid white. An owl that's cruising through the forest would see this moth and say, yep, there's some dinner. And just go pick (laughs) it right up and grab it off the tree. And somehow, I have no idea how, a black moth is born because supposedly this reactor is nearby and it creates this gene gene branch to where it makes a black moth. So three or four black moths are born somewhere in different parts of the forest and then they find each other and then they produce some babies. And then sooner or later, the only, the only moths left are black because the white hmm. ones are being eaten. And that's how one little deviation can either test. It's an A-B test of us, of our DNA, of how good we're doing. That's fascinating. And the lifespan of moths is short enough that you can see a sped up super cycle of evolutionary gradation, I guess, if you will. Because their generations are over a week or, you know, over days versus years and years. Yeah. And that's fascinating. Okay, jumping back to Pershan, Chase, where can I find the ethics guide you mentioned on your interview with the celebrity hypnotist? Who's the celebrity hypnotist? I don't know. Maybe he's talking about Rich Guzzi. We have an ethics okay. guide that's in all of our student manuals, so that's that's where it would be. And the ethics okay. guide basi- basically says we rise by lifting others. Kind of, like, kind of like a variant of the golden rule. Yeah, leave people better than you found them. Um, this is a good one. We got to plug to your other show, the Behavior Panel. Heck yeah! Which I, I've got to point this out too while I read this because it's just I think it's funny. You guys picked a name that can be spelled two ways by a member of your own panel who spells it a different way. Behavior in uh, Canada and England is spelled differently, which is just kind of funny. Um, what is Chase's favorite behavior, behavior panel video and what's the reason why? I think uh, the most, the most interesting video I've ever done with the panel was we were analyzing a, a video of, of this new Netflix series that came out called unsolved mysteries. And this older woman, my, probably my grandmother's age, uh, was being interviewed about an experience with a UFO. And another guy got interviewed about his experience with a UFO. And all of us are watching this and saying, holy crap, these, these people are being honest. And I mean, it's it's me, Greg Hartley, uh, top in the world, former interrogator, former resistance to interrogation instructors, Mark Bowden, the guy who trains leaders of countries in behavior, and Scott Rouse, like, a world champion interrogator, you've got to be pretty smart to get, to get something past us. And that was the first ever episode where all four of us were scared at the end. Hmm. Cause all four of us, we we'd never, I'd never seen anything where I believed a hundred percent of what somebody said. And even if I did see something where I believed it, I'd say maybe there's some bias. I'd say, well, maybe 
maybe I want aliens to exist so bad that I'm, I ignored something or I, I had some truth bias in there. But it's me and these other three guys were sitting there watching. And we're all said that this is 100 percent honest. And I didn't sleep very well that night. So that was a big deal. And I think the my most favorite was recording the episode of The Fly on Mike Pence's head. We analyzed his behavior for half an hour. And uh, we that had to take longer than that to record. Oh, man, it took a long time. We were cracking up a lot. Uh, and speaking of your uh, peers and uh, that expert there, Scott Rouse wants to know, ask Chase questions about your haircut and your tie. Yes. The uh, haircut is performed at the local Navy Exchange on Little Creek Joint Expeditionary Base. And the tie... Oh, uh, it's performed. Well, hold on. It's performed. It's performed, <laughs> yes, by a uh, Filipino woman named Mylene. Every time. All right. And what about the tie? I think it was like six bucks on Amazon, and I. that's about it. Okay. And speaking of great behavior panel moments, Scott and Chase pretty much always have something going, including famous cups. We do. So I highly encourage everybody to check it out and look for the one with the cup. That's a great one. All right. Um, Maria Anafridi asked, Chase, you said corrugation programming could be applied to therapy. Do you know of any instances where it was used to influence physical healing as opposed to just mental healing, like with PTSD? I get a lot of emails. What's that? What is corrugation programming first? The corrugation programming is the, the word corrugation means there's two pieces of cardboard here, but hidden inside of it is a lot of structure to keep it, to keep it good. So it was a, a conversational technique we invented a while ago that has a lot of stuff built into it to make sure it sticks. And mm. I get a lot of emails about people using this stuff for all kinds of things. I don't think I've read anything physical. And if I did, I would be extremely skeptical if I ever saw something like that. Hmm, okay. I would never discount right. it. But it's like when you uh, hear people talk about not believing in the law of attraction or I don't believe in X, Y, Z. It's always fascinating to me that I it, personally, I think the with everything we've built, we've got the iPhone 12. We've got spaceships. We've got Teslas. I think the only ignorant thing we can do is speak with certainty about how the universe presents itself to us. And I think an astrophysicist is probably more aware of their own ignorance than a lot of us. No, that, yeah, you're getting into the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. Um, on some of that, sure. And the law of attraction, I, I can easily push back on that a little bit, though, because there are people who say, well, if I think it is just going to happen, it's like, well, no, you do have to do something. I mean, I can't just sit there and uh, sleep in every day and say, if I think about a million dollars, it's just going to fall upon me. And I, I think that it's kind of represented a little bit that way. Yeah, um, it is. You know. It, I'm, you know, I'm going to think that I'm going to be a great basketball player. No, I'm probably not. I don't have the height. I'm just not quite going to do it. So right. I, I think that there's other tools that sort of have to go along with it. And that's the big problem I have with the law of attraction is it's being sold as this uh, perfect. You think about it, it'll come, build it and they will come. And I think, yeah, you kind of have to do it in conjunction with if you put out the effort and do the uh, be, do have versus have, do be, then it's more effective. Yeah, I agree. And, and if we could jump into that really quick sure. from a skeptic's point of view, and I'm not, I'm not a very big uh, spiritual person. I'm very mm -hmm. science-based and I think the law of attraction is still there. And I was never convinced until recently, just reading about it from, a scientist's perspective, 
saying that at a minimum, we will accept the fact that a person who doesn't believe in it or believes, let's let's take a guy who believes that all that his life is horrible and horrible crap is coming his way versus sure. a guy who believes his life is wonderful and he's got lots of great stuff coming to him. One of those people will be will live a happier life at sure. a minimum, at a very bare minimum. And the second part of that is our brains run on enough electricity to power a vacuum cleaner, which is a lot. Like that's a lot of power up there. Oh, yeah. And they do broadcast something. And we've all had an experience to where we've thought of someone and they texted us. Who the hell knows if that's the real thing or not? Uh, speaking with any kind of certainty, I think, is a little silly. Mm-hmm. But if we're sending out some kind of frequency, I think that we're going to get what we think about a lot because that goes into from a sci- all neuroscience. It goes into something in our brain called the reticular activation system. I just bought a a, a new truck today, and yeah. what'd you get? A Dodge Rebel. Okay. So over the last three days, I've been YouTubing the crap out of this thing just to make sure everything was right. I've watched a hundred rednecks on YouTube explain all these things. But over the last two days, I've seen a hundred of them and I've never noticed one on the road before. The frequency. Either two things are true. Either a, in the last two days, a quarter of the city of Virginia beach bought this truck or Mm -hmm. two, I've started looking at it. My brain says, oh, Chase thinks that's important. I'm going to I'm going to think that's important, too. I'm going to pay attention for that. So then I go out and drive around and I see them everywhere. So the moment that we tell our brain this is important, I want you to look for that. I think that's where the law of attraction is. It's already it's in our head. It's our reticular activating system. So if I'm thinking about nasty stuff all the time. I'm going to continue to look for nasty stuff because the reticular activation system is telling me to do that. So the more we're feeding ourselves with positive stuff, the more we're going to get. And if the frequency thing is true, and if we take a a military frequency or let's say an emergency frequency, which is 121.500 megahertz, this is called international air distress. When a plane says mayday, it's over 121.5. Mm-hmm. If you tune into that frequency, the only thing you're going to hear ever distress. is emergencies and people having the worst day of their life. That's it. But if you tune into another frequency, you'll only hear people talking on that frequency. So I think like if I've got a radio here and I program in what I want to receive mm-hmm. and with 12 watts of power i'll get into a a 30 seconds worth of military antenna and radio transmission science any transmitted signal will continue forever until it is hit by an obstruction a cloud a building a mountain a bunch of trees those things deteriorate radio signals but if i have an antenna that's a 10 watt antenna is the highest power you can get without having a, a license from the FAA in the, in the United States. That's mm-hmm. a lot of power. And you can hit 36 miles with 10 watts. If our brains are at 12, how far are they going? So sure. if I'm just sending out that frequency that's all negative, who am I sending it? Who's receiving it? And who am I going to bump into in the store? Who am I going to get pissed off at in the parking lot? I think there may be something to that. It could be the frequency thing. It might be our reticular activation system. If, you know, the old phrase, if you meet an asshole in the morning, you met an asshole. But if you met an asshole in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening, you might be the yeah. asshole. Uh, yeah, for sure. And by the way, on your um, antenna and signal projection thing, bit of trivia for you. There were some lost episodes of Doctor Who that went on in the 60s. Several years ago, they reflected back from space and they picked them up. Wow. And it was like a matter of the 40 something years or or whatever, but they went out in space and literally came back and they were able to capture and record these episodes of a television show. They got put out. So 
while you're talking about signals, think of all the garbage that we've spewed out there and God help us when, <laughs> yeah. when our friends go and look at all the Hitler messages and whatever else is uh, being spewed. Oh man. That's a really fascinating. I'm going to look that up as soon as we, we get this all done. <laughs> I saw you light up. I'm like, yeah, he's going to yeah. have this one. All right. Um, question here for Ben G. Question. I've noticed that where people scratch their head defer defers on their state of confusion or touch their face, but haven't found any definitive source. Do you have any insight into this? You bet. It's it, it, The answer might piss you off, but everybody's different and we do different stuff. So some things are universal, like facial expressions, but where we touch our face or scratch our head during times of confusions is very much influenced by friends growing up, what our parents did when we were between three and 13 years old in those formative years. The second part of that that I would pay attention to is the amount of pressure that's applied. So I think the amount of pressure against the head or against the face is more important than where it is being done. Is this digital flexion, Chase? What's that? You're always, you like pressure, digital flexion. Yeah. So if, if <laughs> really like digging in there, that, that would, that would be more meaningful than the location to me. Okay. And I'm going to go back to the behavior panel and that just made me think digital flexion chase, which I'm teasing you a little bit, but everybody has, you know, uh, Greg has I access and cues and, you know, it goes through it every time. How would you describe the panel and what are the, um, what would you describe as everybody's favorite go-to? I'll start with Scott. Okay. So, Scott Rouse is a body language expert, but he was a record producer his whole life. He is a legitimately famous uh, music producer. and Grammy nominated. Yeah. He's kind of a big deal. So he tends to view things from his past life. So he looks at, as we all do, so he tends to look at things like what happened to them to make them act like this? Or what are they trying to get over on me? So I assume that he'd been in a lot of uh, shady business deals and stuff, people trying to screw him over, mm. especially in that business. It's probably a lot. So Scott comes at it from a point of suspicion and open-mindedness at the same time, which I think is exactly what everybody is, is really refreshing here. But Scott can narrow down on very, very sharp and very, uh, let's see, academically reliable information in a very short amount of time, much faster than me. Hmm. Greg tends to focus on movement and focuses in on those tiny movements a lot faster than most people. So Greg has the ability to see where this person, Greg tends to see these people through the Maslow's hierarchy a lot of times. And understand how the hierarchy of human need is affecting their behavior in the moment. But I'd say Greg is the baseline guy. So we, we might say Greg has the eye accessing cues thing, but he is obsessed with human baseline, which granted all of us are. But Greg tends to defer to baseline on such a regular basis that it reminds me every time we film, I need to, I probably need to do that more often. Mark Mark Bowden, who is a Brit living in Canada, he is he sees everything through the lens of story, plot, character, function, and reaction. So Mark tends to see story and where this person is on this hero's journey and how it's affecting what's coming out in the moment. And instantaneously, and this is what happens when you go to Harvard, I guess, instantaneously, he has an, an allegory that that harkens back to ancient Rome that I, I look forward to every time we record. And I think that's that's what makes us a really great team, that everybody's got these little superpowers. And what is yours? How would you describe it? I I would love to share this on YouTube. It would just take a long time. Uh, during the episodes when we film, I tend to see things from 
what kind of suffering is this person have in their private life way off camera? How do they hide that suffering in their day-to-day life and what's coming out now that continues to reveal that? So in the case of the Dr. Phil episode we did, this guy had a lot of concealed shame. And the way that I knew it, how I profiled it would have would have taken a whole nother episode. But the way that he hides concealed shame is with humor and deflection or projection, I'm sorry. So he'll project the the negativity onto other people instead of himself. So I see that he probably does this in other areas of his life. Let's see if he brings that to the Phil episode. And let's see if he does that live while we're watching him live, which we we got to see it again, dealing with some of that stuff. And one thing that a lot of people don't really realize is that everybody is suffering. Everybody's got some kind of secret shame. Everybody has some secret shame and how we hide that or how we compensate for it, be it on Instagram or in social media or our social interactions with other people, that is more important than knowing where they are on the Myers-Briggs or knowing what kind of car that the person drives. So understanding how the person reacts to what they need, some of the, what they're fearful of, what they're insecure about or ashamed of. You've brought that up actually a lot in the past. I mean, I've interviewed you for a while. We've known each yeah. other a while. And I know that you came out initially of the pickup artist community, or that's what got you into this to start is being turned down on a date. Is that what has kept you into check? Because let's be honest. Being a young male, a 20-something, we're damn near a monster to begin with. Is it seeing the shame or the pain in other people that has prevented you from, shall we say, teetering over the edge a little bit more? Might have been. I think that gave me, the better I got at reading people, the more empathy I had. Because I realized that uh, everybody else is screwed up like I am. And it, it made people a lot easier to talk to. And I bought a pickup artist book. I won't say the name of it because I don't want to promote it. And I had lunch with a mentor of mine and I told him about this and he's 74 at the time. And I'm like 20, 19, 20. And he has me pull it out. I have it in my backpack. I put it on the table and he says, this is, I'm paraphrasing, but I think it's as close to a quote as I can get. He says, flip through the whole thing. I want you to find me one of the techniques they talk about in there that isn't a way to fake like you're a real man or to fake like you handle your business. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do it. And I was done that day. And I said this, and he, he explained this, like all they're doing is figuring out what triggers somebody's reaction. So all of these things are a byproduct of having your stuff together and, and, and growing up and being more mature and more composed in conversations Those are just like being good with people is a byproduct of having your stuff together off camera. Yeah. And you've said that before. Yeah. The number one trick to getting authority is have your shit together, have your bed made at the house. Yeah. Because you know whether it's right. And another, and I'm bringing some of these up because you've said them over time and they just rang true. When you've talked before about the pain and this kind of ties into projection, the pain, the projection, all that. I think it was you who said that when you go in a piano store and hit the C chord on a piano, all of them ring a little bit. Yeah. Is that a, a perfect analogy for the whole, whatever we're projecting out is possibly going to reflect to, to us. Yeah. yeah. So that, and that's called harmonic resonance. So if you were in a guitar store and you hit the bottom E string on a guitar, that would do the same thing because we're sending out from a certain place that we can't control. So if I'm speaking really confidently, I've read that BS article on LinkedIn that says how to win at body language and how to command respect or whatever crap they have out there. No matter how good your body language is, we're still sending these subconscious signals and Mm -hmm. they're very powerful and the one, the most important thing I could ever give your listeners is where you speak from, be it a place of fear, insecurity, confidence, comfort, openness, 
a desire for connection, whatever it is deep down, not what you're projecting in your head, but just all the way down, where you speak from is where you will speak to. So you speak to that exact same location. You're going to vibrate the same string in the other person. So if I'm secretly fearful, the other person is going to get a gut feeling that there's something that's that's not right. So we're speaking to that same spot. Makes total sense. All right. So jumping to questions here. This is interesting. And I'm always curious about uh, spectrum stuff too. Um, Jenny McLean asks, Hi, Chase. Any recommendations rec- regarding the best strategies to teach those on the autism spectrum to help develop pure relationships? Great success with the adjectives so far. Love the manual. Fascinating question. So I don't know much about the spectrum. And Scott, Scott question. <laughs> yeah, Scott definitely knows a lot about that stuff, and he's very well-versed in the academic side of it and the, and the practicality of that. But I think turning turning the understanding of human behavior into a game as much as possible is the best way to do it, or into a puzzle that that needs to be figured out or unraveled. And one person in Minnesota made a actual game out of my behavioral table of elements for her son. And she's a, she's a board certified psychologist. Mm. So she turned it into a game to where he had to spot what he was seeing. And according to her, she has, she has some good success with that. She's experienced a whole lot. Mm. Her son's kind of grown from it. I would love to. I'm releasing an interview with uh, another guest next week, David J.P. Phillips, who is uh, just an amazing, amazing public speaker. And he has public speaking broken down into 120 elements. And I'm sitting here thinking, hmm, I'd love to take a little of the uh, behavioral table of elements and the public speaking table. Because part of my fascination with you guys, and you're probably sick of it, is I love how you and Greg and Scott are all readers and Mark is a big projector and I'm just fascinated in all the sides of it and kind of being on the side where I'm clueless and I don't know how to do any of it, but I'm a fan and I kind of am, you know, watching and saying, okay, well, this is your style. That's their style. Yeah. I would love to put some of that together because I think it, it all flows together. It's all part of um spectrum, if you will. Indeed. And, and I think all of us on the on the behavior panel, we had no idea it would be even remotely successful. We did that for fun, the whole thing. And it turned out to be an incredible union of of all four of us that that was very harmonic with the way everyone communicates. Everybody's mature and, and respectful of each other. And I think that's why people enjoy the show. I really well, I love- think it's a magic is that. Yeah, I don't think any of you are trying to prove yourself to any of the others. Yeah, none of us feel, I don't think any of us feel the need to. And no, and respect all the others and you just want to talk. Yeah. And just, just kind of hanging out. And I think that's what makes it fun. It's definitely, I've heard from all the guys, but I, I can definitely tell you that is the best time of my week because we BS for... 45 minutes before we were even start recording and we BS on zoom for half an hour when we're done. And I mean, just, that's just the, the most fun is if you're a, a behavior profiler and that's your bread and butter, it's in your DNA. You're seeing it all day. We don't get to, we, there's not a lot of people like us. So, so we don't really get to connect with other nerds on the subject mm-hmm. uh, like we are all the time. And I think that's one of the things that makes it enjoyable for everybody is that we all, speak relatively the same language, even though we've all got different names for a knickknack, paddywhack, whatever behavior, and somebody else has got another <laughs> example of it. That's half the fun, though, isn't it? Because you're like, why would you call it that, you goofball? No. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's great. All right. Back to law of attraction here a little bit. Um, This is, I think you corrected me before. Is it May or my? That's Muller. My, my Britt Muller. I used to play golf on a national level and we were taught something similar to law of attraction to help us in our game. And on some levels it worked, go figure. And yeah, that I know uh, was a Maria Nadratilova. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Talked about winning Wimbledon a thousand times before she ever did in her brain. 
Yeah. And there's even some research on this. That they took this basketball team and, and cut them in two. So we've got 25 guys here, 25 guys here. And one of them shot free throws for an hour. And the other sat in a room in a quiet, dimly lit room and just closed their eyes and imagined shooting free throws for one hour. Just mm-hmm. imagined it. So then they both went out on the court. They took a 10-minute break. They both went out on the court and started shooting free throws. The people who imagined it scored somewhere around 80% better than the people who had just been shooting. And the consensus of the people who did the experiment, and I agree with them, was that the people who were sitting in the in the classroom or whatever it was, imagining this thing, never missed. Mm. So they'd spent an hour making the shot for an hour. And everyone who was doing it in real life was missing on occasion, was hitting on occasion, So they had a repetition of, I'm not sure how this is going to play out. And the people who rehearsed it, mentally rehearsed it, had a lot of experience and repetition of making the shot. Is this like the children in China who uh, play piano on paper and then they got exposed to a piano like one hour of a week? The rest of the time they had sheets of paper with the piano keys on them to practice. I had never heard of this. I didn't know about it. Take notes. I've got things for you to look up after. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. All right. Now, back to the behavior panel real quickly. I love this question from Charlie O'Malley. If Chase had done something bad and was trying to hide it during an interrogation, who out of Greg, Scott, or Mark would be more likely to crack him and why? It would be Greg because I started reading his books a long time ago. And he, I hold him in high esteem, not because he's better than anybody else, uh, but I've I've respected him since a young age, and I've had uh, I wouldn't I have a higher fear of letting Greg down. Okay, I've heard Scott call him your alpha of the group. Yeah, for sure. He he has all the alpha behavior of of the group for sure. Interesting, interesting, and this is actually kind of on that path then question chase did you ever meet a person in your personal or professional life that was able to decept um uh decept you deceive yeah sorry i was trying to put together without you realizing it straight away absolutely that's happened to me recently no but typically uh it happens when it's a, I've had some bad business deals and it typically happens when I get extremely emotional, excited about the deal to the point where I have instantaneous truth bias and I have no idea that it's happening. And everybody around me is, is like, what? Everyone around me knows, but I didn't see it. And that's happened to me a few times in the last 10 years or so. Well, it could be argued that we ultimately deceive ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's I mean, I'm just wondering, like, you want that so bad or you're so excited for it that you're like, yes, oh, and you kind of bypass. Yeah, for sure. Okay, interesting. Um, Maria Onafredi, uh, you said that 80% of the people in Milgram experience were influenced by authority to commit murder. Were there any similarities in the 20% that did not follow authority? Any trait that they shared? There was not. And the experiment, I think, has been replicated over 700 times. And the people in the Milgram experiment that went all the way to killing the other person were about 65%. But one interesting statistic is that 100% of people, 100% went up to 250 volts to shock the other person or think they thought they were shocking the other person. But I think the people with a strong internal locus of control, because we don't just have an internal or external locus of control. And this basically just means, do, do I happen to the world? Do I create my life? Or is it a matter of luck and fate? And the world pretty much happens to me. So an internal locus of control means I am in charge of, of the results that I get. And I, this is my personal belief. But I, I absolutely believe that the people who were in, 
who were able to walk away early, let's just call them that, had mm-hmm. a very strong locus of control that was internal. And we, we don't just have an internal or external. We're typically shifting back and forth. It's kind of a Venn diagram. And how much overlap someone has in their Venn diagram that's that's the real measure of of locus of control is how much overlap is there perfect now when we're talking about influence and everything else to wrap things up i would like to know what is your recipe for cult recruiting and this is very important because we need to leave everybody with a message that they need to first subscribe and definitely like and follow this channel, the very important mind control. So how would you go about recruiting somebody and putting them in a cult? This, uh, let's do the brainwashing example instead. I think that's a little more, a little more cool. And I also, I don't share that outside of our training, outside of my private training, the, the cult thing. But in, in 2012, give or take, I just made up that year. I created a a four part system for brainwashing, so to speak. And it actually, it's an acronym that spells out the word fear, F-E-A-R. But the cool thing about this is that it has a lot of application into our everyday lives and we can use it on ourselves. And the F in fear stands for focus. And I'll, I'll, give this to you like you're doing it to somebody else, but I'd like you to think of it in terms of yourself. The first step is to make sure that that person has absolute and continuous focus on whomever is in charge of that person. Continuous focus. The E in fear stands for emotional involvement or emotional investment. Something has to be done to make sure that person is emotionally invested in the present tense moment. It could be a, if I'm trying to talk to some, if I'm making myself want to eat better, I might use an app and that makes me 30 years older and enormous and put it right on my refrigerator, or I'll print out 40 of them and put them all over the kitchen. That's, that's pretty emotional. The, The A in fear is agitation. So whatever is done during the process must disrupt the person's normal daily routines or expectations of what is normally going to happen. So we have focus, emotional involvement, and agitation, and the R is repetition. You have to continue to do these things and disrupt things. So if I'm coaching you to do something, if I'm if you said, Chase, teach me how to brainwash myself, that's the formula. Obviously, we'd unpack the hell out of that. But that's what I would teach you. The focus is first. We have to get you emotionally invested. We want you to agitate. We want. I want to agitate your schedule. So I'm going to tell you, start waking up earlier, rearrange the furniture in your house. The moment you're deciding to completely change your belief about something, agitate as much of your life as you can, obviously without wrecking it, but change things up. And once that all happens, continue to repeat that process as often as possible. And that is the fear brainwashing acronym, focus, emotional involvement, agitation, and repetition. Very cool. And you uh, tack a OODA loop onto it and that's your repeat, right? That's it. See how it's reacting, adjust, and then start over the whole sequence. And okay, I'm going to put this up. There's obviously an inside joke here. I'm guessing, you know, Charlie O'Malley. But um, one last question. I slipped up earlier when I steered my long yellow car into a tree. The emergency crew had to peel me out of my seat. So, Chase, name a fruit. This is a mentalism trick to have someone say banana. When we say long, yellow, the peel, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. It's okay. a classic. So, name a fruit. So I would say banana at that point. Would you? Okay. Sorry, Charlie, you're wrong. You didn't say orange. <laughs> right. Oh, Chase, this is fantastic. Obviously, yeah. we're not done, right? What are we going to talk about next time? 
Next time, I will go into how to have unstoppable discipline in a way that no one has ever or will ever tell you how to do it. And I will give you my step-by-step program. And I'll even put a download for your comments or your video description section, whatever that is, that everybody can download that I give out to my private clients. Dude, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Now, folks, if you like this kind of content and you like Chase and you like Mark, Mark's coming back on December the 3rd, as a matter of fact, with Simon Lancaster. So that's going to be amazing. If you like the behavior panel, there's a ton of it on the channel. Please, if you like this kind of thing, subscribe. It really does help a lot and helps the channel get discovered and encourages Chase to keep coming back. So, Chase, thank you so much, man. You bet. Thanks, Eric. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.